Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. In this episode, we're escaping to the mountains of the Tibetan Highlands, which lie at the intersection of the Sichuan and Yunnan provinces in China, in search of Shangri-La. Shivaji Das talks about the stunning natural beauty in this remote place, but we also discuss the cultural clashes in the region and the people he met along the way. We talk about complicated histories and how our view of a place is shaped by who we are and our perspective on the world, and also how others see us, as Shivaji is an Indian and his wife is Singaporean Chinese, which made them an unusual couple in the area. So I hope you enjoy this interview today. Shivaji Das is an award-winning Indian writer, traveller, international speaker and photographer now based in Singapore. His books include Angels by the Murky River, Travels Off the Beaten Path, Journeys with the Caterpillar, Travelling Through the Islands of Flores and Sumba, Indonesia, and today we're talking about The Other Shangri-La, Journeys Through the Sino-Tibetan Frontier in Sichuan. So welcome to the show, Shivaji. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me on this show. Oh, it's great to have you here. So you've written about some really fascinating places. And I, I wondered what draws you to travel, especially in these more remote areas? <laughs> Actually, as a child, I was rather introvert and I hated traveling. I, I must say not as a child till I was fairly grown up till I was in my early 20s. I hated traveling and I hated travelers. <laughs> and whenever <laughs> someone like relatives or other friends of my family would come to our house, I'd be like, why are they coming to our house? Why don't they have other better things to do? So it was rather late in my life, in my mid-20s, that I really started traveling for the purpose of leisure and uh, once I did that, and I was forced into traveling when I was working in the United States, and uh, I had nothing to do over the weekend, so I would take buses, Greyhound buses and all that to neighborhood towns or cities. And uh, that's when I began talking to strangers. I got to know about their stories, old people who have lost their kids in Iraq war, immigrants who were traveling with large families, and even the very muscular bullies who would surprisingly offer their bag of chips to me. And uh, all these encounters got me fascinated uh, with travel. And since then, since my mid-20s, I have always looked forward to any opportunity to pack my bag and uh, go to the airport or to the nearest jetty. Why do you choose the places that you choose? Because you've written books about islands in Indonesia, and we're talking about this area that is quite different today. And you mm -hmm. have travels off the beaten path. And for me, I do a lot of trips to, I might go to a bigger city, whereas you tend to get off the beaten track. So what, why do you go to these more remote places? 
So I do go to remote places, but uh, more than that, I go to more uh, traditional travel destinations as well. But it's just that I don't necessarily write about them as much. I guess that's what <laughs> happens. But I've been, I think, almost 10 times to Bali. I've been a few times to Switzerland and to New York City, Hong Kong, and so on. But uh, I think what especially I look for, for my longish travels, the longer trips that I take, which are a month or longer than that, are these places which somehow tend to be less familiar to a greater number of people. But still, what I look for are places which have a combination of nature, combination of uh, different cultures, and some level of historical complexity, because after all, what I really treasure are the interactions with people. And when I get to meet people from various backgrounds with different complicated histories over their course of lives or even before that, that's what I find the most fascinating. So inevitably, they tend to be somehow mountainous places where isolated valleys <clears throat> tend to result in somewhat isolated settlements, which have their conflicts and which have their unique ways of developing and forming over time with their own cultures. And that's what has drawn me to remote islands of Indonesia, to places in the Tibetan highlands, to the northeastern parts of India, and so on. Fascinating. So let's get into the other Shangri-La. So in case people don't know, what is the myth of Shangri-La and how does it relate to that region? Yeah, it's very interesting that it was all based on the novel Lost Horizon by James Hilton, and it became a bestseller in the early 20th century. And James Hilton had never been to the places where he thought was uh, Shangri-La. The idea of Shangri-La is this idyllic place where everyone lived long and everyone is healthy and everyone is happy and they look good and they talk good and all that. So it's like the utopia in our human imagination. And uh, as I was mentioning, he has never been to this place and he had loosely based his novel on the actual travels of Joseph Rock, the famous National Geographic uh, traveler. And uh, he had been to this part of the Tibetan highlands, which uh, lies at, this, at the intersection with Sichuan, as well as with the Yunnan province in China. And his novel is based on that. So James Hilton's novel is based on that. So there is no exact place called Shangri-La as such. But what has happened is that many towns in this region, whether it be small towns in Yunnan or Sichuan or even in Tibet, all the way to even parts of India and Pakistan, they have been trying to declare their towns as the original Shangri-La. So you have maybe five or six claimants and some towns have actually even changed their name to Shangri-La so that they can get some tourists coming in. But the reality is that there is perhaps no such place as a physical place. Uh, of course, there could be mental spaces which are Shangri-La. And uh, that's the whole fascination that people have been hunting for this Shangri-La ever since human civilization, just that the name Shangri-La has been given in the 1930s. And it's so interesting because I offer, as I know you, you travel so much and we, we both do, and it's often that you go to places seeking something, but you can you have to find it within yourself. So even if you're yeah. in somewhere that other people call paradise or utopia, that's not the same for everyone. Yes, yes, it's true. And particularly in this journey, which we took, there was one particular place which had a strong claim to being a Shangri-La, 
And the town management had tried a few times to rename their town as Shangri-La. And it's a very beautiful area, the Yading Reserve, as it is otherwise known as, with beautiful mountains and valleys. And because there was the autumn colors when the time we traveled there, so there was a big, a huge crowd of Chinese domestic tourists who had visited there. And I, there was a big traffic jam when we were trying to get out of the Shangri-La. And I thought in my mind that just uh, the place over the traffic jam is actually the real Shangri-La. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's true. Often these places that become so famous are packed with tourists. Uh, although, yeah. of course, we're re- recording this in pandemic times, so uh, yeah. there's probably, probably no one there right now. But you mentioned <laughs> there the, the mountains and the autumn colours. What is the physical landscape like and how does that make it a challenging area to visit? Yeah, so this is uh, the point where you could consider the Tibetan Qinghai a plateau, which is the roof of the world, to either begin or to end, depending on your perspective. So it's the place where the plains meet the highlands of uh, Tibet, Qinghai. And therefore, you have several mountains, which are 7,000 meters high. And naturally, you have many high valleys in between. You have deep gorges and so on. And uh, many parts of this area, they have uh, some unique claims. So there is this town called Litang, which is claimant to the title of the highest town in the world at an altitude of about 4,500 meters. You have Daocheng, which is considered the highest airport in the world at about 4,800 meters. And then you have Serta, which has the Larungar Monastery, which is considered the highest as well as the largest monastery in the world, as well as the highest illegal settlement or slum in the world. So you can Mm. imagine the kind of landscape there is. So you have very rugged conditions. The road naturally is uh, going to be very dangerous. Uh, You have many accidents which happen here, so much so that uh, drivers in this part of the world, they don't consider themselves men unless they have traveled once to the Sichuan-Tibet highway. And what also happens is that this has resulted in very unique historical developments in this region. And the the fascinating thing is that it's at once very beautiful. On the other hand, it also seems like quite a dangerous place to travel through. Mm. And uh, you mentioned all these sort of really high places and the the roof of the world. So is altitude sickness an issue? So did you have to go up slowly? So I had prepared myself uh, as much as I could. I live in Singapore, which is at sea level highest place is 300 meters high <laughs> and we are talking about uh, going to a maximum of almost 6,000 meters uh, some of the mountains we had uh, gone to so I had done as much as I could doing high-speed running climbing stairs and all that but there was this especially long trek that we had to take in the highlands of Tagong and uh, we were going to live with a nomad settlement and we had stayed there overnight and naturally, I couldn't sleep very well because it was freezing cold. And all with all the preparations still, I was feeling rather cold. And at night, I had stepped out to watch the Milky Way, which uh, looked at its most splendid in that kind of an altitude with clear skies. So naturally, I hadn't slept well. And the next day, when we are trekking back to the town of Tagong, that whole eight hours of walking uh, felt like a nightmare. And uh, I had to actually lie down on the trek during the trek and take some rest. And the dangerous thing was there were some wild dogs and some nomads dogs as well. And Tibetan dogs are one of the most ferocious. 
And when I woke up, I saw one just staring at me within uh, 10 meters distance. So that, <laughs> that was an experience with the altitude uh, sickness that you mentioned. That's, it's so funny to me that you started off saying you never wanted to travel and here you are <laughs> sleeping <laughs> on a, on this road with these wild dogs. That's absolutely classic. But I, I guess the other, you mentioned complicated histories that you were drawn to these regions. And of course, this mm-hmm. is a region that is incredibly fraught with tension. And it's mm-hmm. I even, I know enough to know that it's very difficult as to whether to call a place Tibet or China or, so what are some of the, these historical, religious, cultural, issues that make it such a complicated area yeah and uh, that has been one of the difficulties of writing that book and i had to make a disclaimer as well at the beginning that uh, the terms that i use as uh, whether it's tibet or sichuan or china are not to be taken as my political stance in in this uh, matter as such this is not exactly part of the tibetan province although it's the frontier land between tibet province and sichuan And most of the people in this region happen to be Tibetan. And the benefit of going here as a traveler was that in Tibet, you are only allowed to go as part of a tour group. But when we were traveling there in 2017, it was not a necessary thing. So we could pretty much travel on our own. But this place also from time to time has been a hotbed of protests by Tibetans against the Han government rule in the center or the Chinese government rule at the center. And you have had self-immolations, you have seen demonstrations, protest speeches during cultural festivals and so on. So there is a bit of this edginess whenever you go through this part. And what we also know now is that many of the places we visited, such as Larungar, for instance, travelers, especially foreign travelers, are no longer allowed to visit those places. So in a way, we were one of the last ones Uh, last foreigners, at least at this point of time, who could visit some of these places and access has been since barred because of the political situation there. And even though uh, people didn't explicitly mention these tensions to us because they would have taken great political risks or some other risks if they actually came out very openly, But there were many indirect references to the tension between, say, economic domination by the Hans over the Tibetans, the cultural domination which was happening, access to land and so on. And overall, the issue with Dalai Lama and uh, they thought that the way Dalai Lama is being treated, especially the Tibetans thought the way Dalai Lama was being treated was an insult to the entire Tibetan race. So much so that in many towns, when they got to know that I was an Indian by origin, People would gather around me, they would get their children to come and touch me and get blessings for me because they said that, oh, he's coming from India and they are the people who have sheltered the Dalai Lama, so just touch him because we can't visit him, but at least uh, he, on certain occasions, may be able to visit this person, so just get blessings for him. So such were the things that uh, we encountered during our trip. That's really sad. That makes me sad. But it, it is interesting. So the Dalai Lama does live in the north of India. That's correct? Correct. In Dharmashala, yes. Yes. Yeah, so I can see how people might feel that. And wow, that's incredible. So could you see the differences between the Tibetan areas and the 
Chinese areas. So, for example, you mentioned the city of Chengdu. And what are the distinctive characteristics? So could you see it in the architecture and the way people act religiously and things like that? Is it really obvious what the differences are? Obviously, there are physical differences, which is the number one differentiator. Tibetans typically have broader shoulders, more weather-beaten skin color, and a general ruggedness to their looks, whereas the Han Chinese look slightly different in that sense. So the physicality, as well as the fashion sense, is very different. Tibetans like to have big amulets and lots of beads around their necks and so on. So they like to wear big hats. They have this rugged Western look about them, which the Hans usually don't correspond to. But in terms of settlements, it's not very obvious in the town's for example, Ditang, the one I mentioned, the highest town in the world, more than, I, I would say, almost half the population is now Han over subsequent waves of migration in the last 20, 30 years. So uh, it's hard to hard for many of these cities to retain their original Tibetan character. And in fact, some of the uh, people that we met along the way, we asked them about Lhasa, which is the capital of uh, Tibetan province. They said, oh, we don't like Lhasa, because Lhasa is just like any other Chinese town. It's not a Tibetan town anymore. But these places that we visited still had their Tibetan character. Now, when it comes to Chengdu, of course, it's a much larger city and it has a big Tibetan population as well. And there is a specific quarter, the Tibetan quarter, where you find uh, the things Tibetans usually love, those those, uh, shops which sell these beads, which sell these idols, the big Buddha idols. Tibetans make them, Tibetan restaurants and so on. So there is a big settlement in Chengdu itself, which is very Tibetan. But one of the things that has happened over time and which some Tibetans complain about is that there has been increasing signification of sorts of the Tibetan culture because you have this giant population of Hans who are churning out cultural assets with such velocity and the much smaller Tibetan population can't really keep up with that, whether it's music, whether it's films, whether it's language in schools. So there is this creeping signification of uh, Tibetan culture, which has been happening, and some are resentful of that. But there's also the opposite trend that uh, the Hans have been considering Tibetans as uh, with a certain cool, and they are kind of chic to have. So many uh, new brands in China, they have their lettering in the Tibetan script. Tibetan music and Tibetan looks are also becoming popular, of course, in a much uh, smaller scale. So there is this reverse trend as well, and particularly strong for Tibetan Buddhism, which is becoming a big hit with the, the wealthier people in southeast of China, in Fujian, in uh, the Canton Belt. And a lot of the monasteries that we visited are now being resurrected or they are being repaired, not by government funds, but with this uh, private funds from the southeastern parts of China. So in a way, Tibetan Buddhism has got this boost from this wealth from Han Chinese who are in the southeast part of the country. Wow, that's really interesting. And you mentioned monasteries there. I think those of us who have not been to the area have that seven years in Tibet film in mm. mind and this monastery up in the mountains. And that's, I guess, the only image I have in my head as what would be Tibetan architecture. <laughs> so what, were there any sort of particularly beautiful buildings like that? Or I just love architecture. So you particularly remember. Yeah, uh, they all follow a certain uh, standard, which uh, the pagoda structure, which some say has come from Nepal and then was passed on to Tibet. So you have this pagoda structure and essentially what what causes the difference from one monastery to another is their history and reputation. 
So Durge, the monastery in Durge, for instance, has one of the largest library of hand-printed books and scrolls, which is there. There are myths associated with certain idols. The one in Tagong has, was the place where the Chinese princess was bringing an idol of uh, Buddha to Lhasa. She dropped that idol, so there is a monastery there. So there are these histories associated with monasteries, their scale, and certain specific aspects which make them unique from one to other not so much the architectural differences between them. But going to any monastery is still a fascinating experience. When we went to some of these monasteries, we could watch the monks debating to pass the examinations, which they have to go through from time to time. And watching a Tibetan debate is quite uh, unique because the way they debate is when you make a point to jump on one leg and then clap your hand. And uh, that style is very unique. And when you make a mistake, all the other monks are kind of laughing. <laughs> it was quite an experience to, to go to some of these monasteries as well. Wow, that's really interesting. And uh, were, were there anything, because you obviously, you tra- you're so well-traveled in this area of the world, but was there anything that really surprised you or made you go, wow, that's just very different? Of course, there is the, the natural aspect, you know, this Yading Valley, which is claimed to being one of the Shangri-Las, the whole beauty of that valley in terms of having these three peaks which are 6,500 meters high facing each other and then you have a beautiful orange grassland and all the fall colors. So that's one of the most beautiful natural landscapes that I had visited. But uh, some of the traditions and culture are also quite unique. And for instance, these practice of sky burials in which the Tibetans uh, deal with their dead bodies by feeding them to vultures. And one step further, they would first offer the dead bodies to the vultures. And once the vultures have consumed the easier parts of the body, they would chop up the flesh into smaller chunks and the bones into smaller chunks so that it's easy for the vulture to eat it. And it makes perfect sense that altitude because you don't have big trees to burn the bodies. You don't have enough soil to bury the dead. But it's a very unique way of dealing with the dead and the whole myths and traditions and rituals that Tibetans have built around the culture of death or around dead people, something similar to Egypt in the ancient times, is something very unique and I found quite fascinating. That is fascinating. I have read about those those sky burials. And of course, there there is, I, I read that there is a tower of silence in even in the middle of Mumbai, where the Zoroastrians, I think, put their the bodies out, but there, that there aren't enough vultures left. <laughs> yes, yes, they have to import the vultures there. <laughs> to, to deal with it. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah. and as you say, it's such a, it makes logical sense. And yet, to certainly to a British mind and any sort of Western yeah. mind, it would be like what you're chopping up, you're chopping up bodies. That's crazy yeah. and feeding them to the vultures. Yes. So, yeah, that's really interesting. The, the other thing, you travel with your wife who who is Chinese and acted as a translator. So how did and you're Indian, obviously. So how did your varied backgrounds help or sometimes hinder, I guess, your interactions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an interesting question. My perspective on this is that overall it's been more beneficial for us to travel together. On the negative side, of course, when you travel alone in this belt, and typically if you are an Indian traveling in this belt, the Tibetans tend to trust you a lot more. The other 
experiences that I mentioned that they were surrounding me, they were trying to touch me and get my blessings just because I happened to be an Indian. The, there could have been a bit of uh, suspicion among the Tibetans just because I was traveling around with a Chinese woman, no matter what her citizenship was. She is actually a Singaporean. But on the positive side, I think the big benefit that uh, we got was the benefit of language because most of the uh, people that we met, they could speak Mandarin and my Mandarin is uh, relatively more basic. I couldn't get into the nuances of the culture as well as my wife could. So our conversations with the locals were far richer uh, because of this benefit of language. The other big benefit that I see is that when we travel together, we get to interact with a lot more women. And that is something I've seen in other travel books as well. The characters are usually men. But in my case, I'm able to converse with a lot more women and to also get to know a lot more about women's lives and women's situation in these areas, just because one, I'm traveling with my wife and uh, also sometimes she is on her own and she talks to other women by herself and then later she tells me what has happened. So I think that's a big benefit that I get by traveling together with her. And finally, the other benefit is that there is a general curiosity about us when we travel together. And people see these two people from different races. So they are naturally curious and they come to us and they share more about us, which again, I find one of the benefits of traveling together with a person from a different race as mine. Yes, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? And my my husband is a New Zealander, which isn't that different, but he's also mm-hmm. Jewish and I'm not Jewish mm-hmm. and I'm British. And so even though we might look the same, we have quite different cultural backgrounds. And mm-hmm. the a cross-cultural marriage, I find, is a really interesting way <laughs> to get to yes. know someone else's culture. We're both travellers and I feel like it's almost the way that the world is going to change is right. by people intermingling in this way and kind of proving that it's possible. What do you think? I I completely think so. In fact, we have been surprised that uh, just in this small city of Singapore, among our friend circle, we have five couples who are just like us, uh, as in the one of them has come from China, one of them has come from India, they have got together here and they have been together for almost a decade or so. But if I can just add on to this point, it's also sometimes interesting how you get to understand yourself in such situations. And both myself and my wife, we tend to think of ourselves as citizens of the world with, I'm not a nationalistic person. I don't have any religion. I, I think the same goes for my wife as well. She also doesn't have any religion or any nationalistic instincts. But when we were traveling, we had these small arguments over food, over cultural achievements, And I was saying Indian food is much better than Chinese food. She was saying, no, no, it's the other way. And then it went all the way to performance in Olympics and so on. So it was quite interesting for both of us that two of us who think that we don't have any such cultural baggage and all that still do have some of these left behind and some strong traces which uh, tend to appear when (laughs) we are put into some kind of a conflict. I don't know whether you have experienced the same in some cases as well. Oh, absolutely. The, these things def- definitely happen. <laughs> but it, it, although I must say, I, maybe again, as being British and having such strong ties to India, I'm with you on the Indian food. Oh, my Indian wife food. Actually, yeah, it's actually the other way beside this trip. Actually, when we are at home, my wife tends to cook Indian food and I tend to cook Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, but on food, the 
word Sichuan, to me, the only thing that comes to mind food-wise is the pepper. That's the famous thing about the area. So what is the cuisine of the area? And what are some interesting things that you might eat or drink in that area? <laughs> sure, I think that's an interesting question, but I may not be the right person to answer that because I'm a vegetarian by choice. And that that makes me, gets me exposed to only a very small percentage of the entire cuisine which is available in that part and but what you said is very true in Sichuan there is a complete monopoly of Sichuan pepper and whether you are having breakfast lunch whether you are having dessert or whether you are having the main course or starter you will end up with Sichuan pepper and it's a spice which is very dominating it will dominate everything else that you put in the food so whether you're having cauliflower or potato or noodles everything tastes like Sichuan pepper which is fine if you're having a one meal of Sichuan dish uh, or one Sichuan meal once in a month or once a year but when we were traveling uh, for more than a month, I was having this every meal for three times a day <laughs> and, uh, for almost a month. So the only arguments we had coming back to the previous question was actually over food. And I was getting quite stressed with this monopoly and this complete abuse of power of Sichuan pepper and was really looking forward to other options. Now, the other cuisine which is there is, of course, the Tibetan cuisine which uh, happens to be quite unique because uh, when you live with the nomads, when you are in the highlands, there's not much uh, vegetation there. So it tends to be heavy on millets and samba, as they call it, which is essentially a lump of flour and you mix it with some water and with some butter and cheese and you just swallow it uh, on the whole. So it's uh, it's quite bland. It's quite it has limited range. But over time, when I was getting really um, bored of Sichuan cuisine, I was really looking forward to Tibetan food, and that's when I discovered that it's actually not as monotonous or not as it should have more a better reputation in the world because there is. Tibetan capsicum fried rice with butter, which is very good. There are these Tibetan dumplings, which can be quite interesting. There is, of course, the Tibetan tea, the salted butter tea, which is very unique as well. Then you have the milk tea as well. And then there are some unique desserts, uh, which are you know, some of these figs dipped in or caramelized figs and so on, which I found was quite unique. And there's this special dessert, which is a fig, uh, caramelized fig which uh, once you eat, is every fig uh, that you eat is supposed to increase your uh, lifespan by one more day. You expected life Ooh, by right. one more day. So <laughs> you ate a lot of those. <laughs> I just had one of those, but <laughs> I wish I was living there for a bit longer. But yeah, I had a chance to only have one. <laughs> so one extra day in my <laughs> Wow, that's well, it's either a really good marketing ploy <laughs> by, by the fig people. No, that's really interesting. And it's funny because, again, I wouldn't have associated figs with an area so high up in the mountains. Yeah, yeah so you know, it, it mainly comes from trading. So the Tibetans, they produce butter, they produce cheese, and then they trade with salt, fig, uh, tea, and all those things from other parts of China. So it's not a product of the region, but it's like a dry fruit, so it's easier to store and easier to prepare in whenever you feel like it. Ah, okay. So uh, as this is the books and travel show, uh, apart from your own books, which are fantastic, what are a few books that you recommend either about that area or just travel books that you love? So I, I would say one of the writers who have written about uh, Tibet and similar in scope, I would say is Ma Jian 
who lives in UK. He is one of the dissenters now exiled in the United Kingdom. But his book, The Red Dust, is something that has had a big influence on me. It's very difficult, different from traditional or typical Chinese literature. And it's very gritty and very in your face. And that whole look and feel and uh, the appeal of the book is what is there. And uh, I was fortunate enough that Ma Jian actually recommended and endorsed my book in the blog, in the blurb <laughs> that he did. So I was very happy when he agreed to do that. But also, I think apart from Red Dust, which I strongly recommend, the book by Ma Jian, I would also recommend books by the famous Polish journalist, Richard. His books on Africa and Iran and Ethiopia, Imperium, and so on are highly recommended from my side. And also V.S. Naipaul's earlier travel work, especially his travels in India and Malaysia, Pakistan, and Indonesia among the believers is something I would recommend as well. Fantastic. This is the, the problem with this show. I end up with such a big <laughs> reading list. <laughs> no, but that's great. So where can people find you and your books online? Yeah, people can look me up on my website, shivajidas.com. That's my first name, last name.com. My books are all available either as ebook or as physical book in many countries. I believe over 20 over countries. Amazon is definitely a good place to look for as well as book depository for both the ebook version as well as the physical version. And in any big bookshops in the major cities in the world, they are available. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Shivaji. That was great. Thank you so much, Joe, and have a good uh, day ahead. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.